Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning again. I'm Carmen LaVerge. It is the 2nd of March, 2023. This is hour two of Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Thank you so much um, for being here. Okay, take a deep breath. Take a deep breath because, um, yeah, I'm not going to talk about China or Russia or North Korea or, you know, <clears throat> any number of bad actors that we have talked about recently. I am going to talk for a moment here. Um, about Iran. Now, remember, we're seeking to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day, which means that we we do actually have to consider the headline news of the day. And so take a deep breath, because um, what I'm about to share, you know, it could provoke fear. And I don't, that's not my uh, intent or goal. Like, right, awareness is important. We don't want to be people who are living with our head in the proverbial sand. We want to be people who are looking at the horizon Um, and uh, assessing the times in which we live. We want to be prudent, um, and we want to be prepared. So we've been talking about China and Russia and periodically about North Korea, but today I want to focus here briefly at the outset on Iran. The United Nations nuclear watchdogs have declared that... um, Iran has now reached uranium enrichment of 83.7%. That means that they are something like 12 days away from um, having the kind of material that is necessary for the production of a nuclear bomb. Mm -hmm. So um, this finding of the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, is raising concern, as you might imagine, um, on Capitol Hill. And um, the Biden administration uh, is, quote, very, very worried by Iran's progress toward nuclear weapons grade uranium. Uh, That is according to a diplomat, um, you know, obviously speaking anonymously yesterday. So according to Axios, Uh, Here's the quote from Axios. A top U.S. defense official said on Tuesday that Iran will need only 12 days to enrich enough weapons-grade uranium to build one nuclear bomb, though the United States has also said it doesn't believe Iran has made the decision to resume um, its weaponization program. Um, The BBC is saying experts estimate weaponization or manufacturing of a nuclear warhead for a missile um, would still take another one to two years. Okay, so I just wanted you to take a deep breath and know that that's happening as you are praying the news um, this morning and considering that God's got it all, the whole world in his hands, um, but in some places, bad actors have their hand on very nasty material. Closer to home, a group of bipartisan senators here in the United States um, has been meeting quietly behind closed doors on plans to retool Social Security. Um, Social Security, as we have talked here um, on many occasions, like the, just 
most recently with Bill English. Um, Social Security, you know, like funds are going to run out in something like 2032 if nothing changes. And so we need to retool or reform Social Security. We need to retool and reform so many things at a national level here in the United States. But Social Security is one of those. Um, Here are some of the things they're talking about. Gradually raising the retirement age to 70, which frankly totally makes sense to me. Creating a $1.5 trillion sovereign wealth fund. Um, Those funds would be invested uh, in the market economy, uh, in stocks, uh, and the fund would be separate from the already existing Social Security Trust Fund, which we keep raiding, by the way, to pay for other things. And if the uh, this sovereign wealth fund um, were to underperform, then Social Security would be shored up by increasing the maximum taxable income and payroll taxes and those kinds of things. So um, it needs to be retooled. It needs to be reformed. Let's be praying that this group of bipartisan senators working behind closed doors comes up with something that um, that we can pass because we got to do something. Um, all right. And then uh, of prayer concern and I think of interest to many people listening, um, you probably heard that Lori Lightfoot um, became the first mayor in Chicago ever to lose a reelection bid. Well, I guess it hasn't happened in something like 40 years. Um, and so um, on the day following uh, her failure to uh, be reelected, the police sh- superintendent of Chicago, David Brown, said on Wednesday that he would uh, leave his post. So um, he has resigned effective March 16th. Um, and so the mayor will be gone. The chief of police will be gone. And I think that provides for an opportunity for there to be um, positive progress in terms of, um, yeah, I mean, Chicago, I don't know if you know this, but it's it's just been under the scourge of rising violence um, and crime. And so these there is hope, I think, that the change in leadership, not only um, in the mayor's office, but with the, at the level of the chief of police, um, you know, that maybe positive progress can be or reform can be found. Let's certainly pray that for America's fourth largest city. All right. Matthew Bennett's going to join us next. Um, he's got hope for American evangelicals. <laughs> I mean, that is some good news, right? There's hope, friends. I mean, we know that hope springs eternal, but hope also um, can spring forth in the here and now. What does it look like to take a good, hard look at our house as evangelical Christians and do the remodeling, um, the cleaning out, the shoring up that needs doing in order that um, American evangelicalism might thrive again? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Matthew Bennett is an assistant professor of missions and theology at Cedarville University. Um, He served as a missionary in North Africa and the Middle East um, prior to his service at Cedarville. He's passionate about missions and theology. Um, We love talking with him. He's got a brand new book, Hope for American Evangelicals, a missionary perspective on restoring our broken house. Matthew, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, thank you so much, Carmen. I'm glad to be with you. 
All right. So um, before we um, wander into the house, because I do want to wander around in the house with you, I love the approach that you've taken. And so I want to do that. But first, um, the title suggests that our house is broken, that our house is in need of of repair. Hmm. So maybe make that assessment for us, sort of serve as the home inspector today. Sure. Well, I mean, I think if you look around, there's a whole lot of things that are um, being said about evangelicalism in the news and even from within um, former evangelicals, people deconstructing their faith and pointing to evangelical uh, traditions, culture, or sometimes even theology that that point out that this is the reason that things are are broken, whether that's issues of race or politics or even just the self-aggrandizement that kind of comes along with some of the uh, celebrity that we've we've curated within uh, within some of our evangelical spheres. And uh, while while I think that there is still hope for restoring the foundations, I, I do think that it's right for us to listen to some of those critiques and to consider, are there places where maybe we have drifted from some of the, the principles that have made evangelical what it was intended to be and and might be susceptible to some of those critiques? And I, I want to take those seriously while not discarding or feeling like we need to deconstruct and, and leave those evangelical moorings that are rich and are redeemable. I think, um, so first of all, the foundation is secure, like, right? And I think that's just something that's important to recognize and remember. Um, the, the foundational underpinnings of this house are good. I mean, there are some things that need attention. I do think that, um, you know, so, so I want to say it's worth reinvesting in. It's worth remodeling. It's not time to tear it down or move on, but, because you come to this inspection process as a missionary, you are able to help those of us who've been living in the house see some things that we've long been ignoring. Yeah, the the kind of running analogy that I have through the book is uh, it parallels my own experience having been uh, raised in a, a single house. Um, you know, kind of it's my my place of upbringing. I was familiar with it. It's connected to all sorts of nostalgic memories and things like that 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 shaped me and formed me and really were my idea of home in this house. But then I was gone for college and a little bit longer um, uh, and returned uh, in order to help my mom prepare the house for sale. And when I returned, having been gone from these spaces, I still had the nostalgic appreciation for things, but I started looking at it through a different lens, trying to say, what would it look like for someone who's coming in from the outside, considering this uh, this might be a house that they would purchase, what would it look like to make sure that I'm looking at it through those lenses? And then how do I see places that might need some touching up, that might need some repair? And and honestly, uh, which, which might need some attention that we have just failed to give to it because well, we lived here and we grew up and we uh, accommodated our habits to some of the things that were maybe less than, uh, less than great about the house. And so I, I applied that uh, to the idea of a, a missionary coming back to evangelical spaces, which again kind of parallels uh, my family's recent experience, saying what does it look like for us to come back with missionary lenses, seeking to uh, now reinvestigate some of the spaces that we we still want to have that missional beauty of a gospel-transformed evangelical community, but now seeing some of the critiques and maybe wanting to suggest that if we if we donned some missionary lenses and looked at some of these hot-button issues within evangelicalism, it might reshape the way that we consider uh, what the what the next steps are. 
We're going to continue our conversation with Matthew Bennett in just a minute. I'm going to invite him to introduce us to one of the main characters in the book, uh, and that is Leslie Newbegin. Who is Leslie Newbegin, and why should we be interested in what he would say about all of this? We're talking about American evangelicalism and the hope for American evangelicals. The book is um, Matt's Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House, Hope for American Evangelicals. More in just a moment here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with Professor Matthew Bennett from Cedarville University. The book is Hope for American Evangelicals, A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House. Um, Matthew, introduce us to Leslie Newbegin. Sure. Leslie Newbegin is uh, a guy who uh, was a, a big figure in missions um, in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, he spent about 40 years as a uh, uh, a guy from the UK uh, living in India and ministering there among a variety of different uh, groups, some more ecumenical than others, but uh, uh, predominantly he was engaged in seeing the the Church of India raised up and em- empowered and equipped. Uh, spent 40 years doing that in various ways, but then uh, sort of had a second career after he returned home uh, with his wife um, to spaces that he grew up in, in the UK. And uh, he really began to recognize the fact that the tools and reflexes that he had learned as a missionary to be assessing culture around him, to be identifying idolatry in those spaces that were foreign to him, uh, were really the same sorts of tools and reflexes that were appropriate appropriate back home. And he started seeing maybe there's not little alcoves and shrines with physical gods that are uh, populating them like they were in India. But back home, he was able to identify, man, we have we have uh, sort of cultivated uh, different sorts of idolatries, but they're idolatry nonetheless. And so his missionary lenses of cultural assessment, he began to apply to his home spaces. And uh, much of his writing, uh, especially most of his uh, most well-known stuff, actually came from his missionary perspective applied back home. And he was writing, again, in the second half of the 20th century. And so my my aim in this book is to say, is there something we can draw from this brother and some of his insights, even though he was applying them to 20th century uh, United Kingdom life, uh, is there ways that we can learn from some of the things that he sees and apply them to some of our contemporary issues here in the United States in order to recognize the beautiful underpinnings of our evangelical uh, legacy and and convictions while also being able to critique um, in in a healthy way, pushing us towards a better display of the gospel in some of these places where uh, our broader society might be identifying some some infelicities in the way that we have lived out our faith. 
So forgive me in advance if um, you make reference to it in the book and I missed it, but um, Robert Munger's My Heart Christ's Home um, kept rising up within me um, as a person for whom that very, very brief little piece was um, significant and important in my own for, you know, the formation of my faith. Um, and you do a similar thing, but what you're taking us on a tour of is not an individual heart, but American evangelicalism um, writ more largely. So take us on a bit of a tour here. Um, it doesn't matter to me if you want to wander into the dining room, the living room, the bedroom, the yard, um, or, you know, the neighborhood. Um, but because sure. this will help people understand, like, how the how the book is structured and what you're doing in here. Yeah. So uh, this is uh, this book is written um, not necessarily as a, an academic book. And so I realized, you know, if it's an academic book, professors going to assign it and people have to read through it, whether they find it interesting or not. So this one uh, needs something to kind of be the the glue, the uh, attractive, uh, ongoing, developing story uh, that to incentivize uh, readers to keep going. And so the, the way that I did that was I tried to take each one of the rooms and give you a little snapshot of what it was like for me to walk through it, to make some observations as uh, somebody who both appreciated its familiarity, but then also was seeking to make it uh, as beautiful as it can be, as attractive as it can be for somebody who's a potential buyer. And I use each one of those rooms as kind of a uh, uh, an analogy for the issue that I wanted to address. So, for instance, in the in the dining room, I talked about how the the space was relatively small and kind of cramped and cluttered, but that the the thing that I remembered about that space was that we had this kind of old, really relatively beat up dining room table. And uh, even though the space was small, I remember there were three extra leaves that we could bring from uh, from behind the door where we could expand the table and we could make it bigger when we had guests coming over. And uh, I used this analogy to say that despite the size of the room being rather constrained, it seemed like there was always extra room to add another chair, to add another leaf in the table and to invite people to share a meal together, to laugh and pray together. And in the same way as that was uh, then sort of the, the the magic of that space, I tried to apply that to some of our discussions as uh, believers uh, in spaces where the broader society is identifying cultural tensions across racial uh, racial barriers. And within the church, uh, we seem to have uh, that seems to be a very hot button issue for some reason. And we've got those who might appeal to um certain sociological resources in order to try to pave a way forward. And then on the other side of the aisle, we say, oh, that's that's just uh, repackaged market Marxism. And we're having these discussions at a sociological level when, in fact, the beauty of the gospel is that it is something that invites diverse people to an ever-expanding table. And so if we were to look at not only the theological resources that the church alone possesses for moving forward towards a diverse unity, um, but also the missiological impact for a culture that has rightly identified racism and tensions between people as something that is a sin issue, well, they don't have any resources to address or to, uh, to fix that sin issue in the way that the church does. Fact, so I think this is really advantageous for us to to recognize that the issues that our culture is attuned to of sensing something that is the product of sin, they also don't have an answer for. Whereas the church has 
an answer that is not only theologically helpful, saying we are unified under the one blood of Christ at the one cross and draft crafted into the one vine made to be one people, that as we display the beauty and of the unity of the gospel as a diverse church, we actually present an embodied apologetic for the, the goodness of the gospel to a world that's sensitive to sin, but not necessarily able to um, offer a, a way forward. And so I think the the missiological lenses then look at this issue and they say, let's let's scrap some of these um, sociological discussions and say, what resources does the church already have to manifest a radical unity in the gospel as a way of not only uh, living out what is true in the gospel, but displaying it to the world around us? So each room has different issues that it looks at and, and tries to recognize that beyond some of the polarities that have existed within the evangelical spaces that make these hot button issues, a missionary lens actually, I think, can resolve some of those tensions by drawing us to take off those polarized lenses and instead put on gospel lenses, both for those of us within the church and for the beautiful display that we're called to be as kingdom people who would be a light to the nations. Okay, I, I love the replacing of polarized lenses with gospel lenses. That's just such fantastic imagery and language and something very practical. Um, I also ap- appreciate, you know, this sort of lived missiological apologetic, like what does it look like to like live that out? And so thank you for that language um, today as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is excellent. Thank you so much for um, bringing this conversation forward and doing so in a way that like we can walk around in because a house is such, I mean, that's, that's such um, an image uh, that, I mean, it's, it's so physical, it's so tangible. And so thank you for mm-hmm. um, offering it to us in that way. It, it really is a yeah. gift. Well, I appreciate that. And I will just say at the end that the one place that I acknowledge and embrace actually that the analogy breaks down is that uh, what I'm talking about in the book is coming to prepare my house to be sold, as in I'm going mm-hmm. to move out. But the the difference in what I'm talking about with the evangelical house is, man, I want to stay, but I want to invite more people in. Yeah. Yeah. I want I want every room to be full again. Absolutely. In, in, in all the right ways, in all the right ways. Matthew, um, as always, thank you so much for joining us. You guys can connect with Matthew Bennett at Cedarville University. The book is Hope for American Evangelicals, A Missionary Perspective on Restoring Our Broken House. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Is the church in decline? I mean, 100% of your answer depends on your your personal experience, like what's going on right now in your local church, in your denomination, um, in your national experience. Is the church in decline? Millions and millions of people come to faith in Jesus Christ every year. Millions and millions of people come to faith in Jesus Christ every year. So is the church in decline? <laughs> Heavens no. No. Year over year, millions more come to Christ. The gospel is still the best good news out there. Um, So don't be discouraged today. The light has not gone out. Even if it feels dark where you are right now, there is good news. 
the light shines most brightly in the darkness. And friends, the darkness will never overcome it. Jesus assures us um, he, he's going to build his church. He's going to protect his church. He's going to welcome his church. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And so in whatever darkness persists where you are, let your light shine today. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Yeah, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan snuff it out. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. We uh, we talked earlier this week with um, Luke Moon, and um, and we got into a conversation about the descending church and the ascending church and the different experiences that people have in terms of the local expression of uh, of Christian community. And so we're going to talk today with Steph O'Brien and Paul Olson. They are pastors, one who was pastoring a descending church, the other who was pastoring an ascending church, and now they're pastoring together a, uh, a merged congregation. It's called Mill City. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is a new day. Everything's bursting with hope. Coming alive this moment, moment. All right, joining us now, Steph O'Brien and Paul Olson. They are pastors at Mill City Church, but that hasn't always been the case. And so we're excited to have you guys join us today. Paul, let me start with you. Tell us the story of Elam Church, and if I'm mispronouncing that, please forgive me. Um, and maybe the first day you remember thinking to yourself, we're going to have to do something really different if we're going to survive. Thanks for having us on, Carmen. Uh, Elam Church started in 1888 um, by a few women who got together in a stowing club across the river from downtown Minneapolis and said, we don't want to take the bridge across with our horses anymore. <laughs> we want to have a church right here in our neighborhood. And so they they got together with the men and in January of 1888 decided we're going to we're going to start a church and through a process uh, they were Swedish immigrants and they spoke only Swedish and met together have been meeting together um since and many generations have passed through the church the 135 years that we've existed. Uh, early on, I came to Elam about five, six years ago, and in a in a in a prayer time with the Lord, I heard the I heard five I heard five years, and I heard that the Lord was just saying, "You're going to have about five years of grace, Paul, and in in five years, I'm going to do something with with Elam and with you." And I remember that very clearly. I told a few people, and here we came to June 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly five years after, after that. And our church was in a, a deep discernment after COVID of, of what is our mission? Where are we going from here? What do we want to do? Do we push harder? Do we, do we, what, what do we do? And we want to honor God with the resources uh, that we have and um, the people that we have. Yeah. And we have wonderful, wonderful um, members. Yep. And, we, we ended up going this direction uh, as the Lord led us. All right. And this, this direction 
um, leads us into a conversation with Steph O'Brien. So, Steph, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Tell us the story of Mill City Church and maybe as a part of this um, sort of, you know, like what what continues to inspire Christians to plant new churches when there are already so many churches in our communities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, churches are are like uh, organisms that have life cycles that ascending and descending or declining and growing. I mean, that's that's a part of the deal. And so um, when we start new churches, what we find anywhere in the world is that new people come to faith, younger generations step up and start leading, and there's a sense of, of renewal that happens. And so that's often done very well if it's in partnership with the established church. And so that was our heart 15 years ago when we started Mill City Church is that we would be a church that was a blessing not only to Northeast Minneapolis, but to all the other churches around. And so Elam was one of those churches that we partnered with from the beginning. In fact, they offered so much hospitality to us, allowing us to use space there uh, for for our gatherings and prayer times and Bible studies. And so that's how it, how our church began. And our mission was to love our community in the name of Jesus. We named the church Mill City after the nickname for Minneapolis, because you often will name something after a place that you love. And so we love Minneapolis and want people to to know Jesus is behind that why of that love. And we've been doing that for 15 years, worshiping in a school. Las Estrellas used to be called Sheridan School, and it's six blocks from the Elam building. Um, so we've been in that school in this big auditorium for 14 and a half years <laughs> and uh, weren't looking for a building, weren't looking for any of the conversation that we ended up having between the two churches, but had always been in prayerful support of both of each church. We had supported each other from the beginning. Okay. Now, both of you fast forward. Um, who reached out to who and how did this better together proposal come to life? Paul, you you started it. <laughs> uh, well, our uh, our leadership team uh, came together uh, in late 2022, um, and or late um, excuse me, late 2021, and we we determined we we need to be on our knees praying, asking God for direction. We put all all options on the table, including Pastor Paul. Maybe P- Pastor Paul needs to move on or something like that. And we, <laughs> we could, we kept, we kept, you know, kind of going through different scenarios and things. And, and we really had no idea where, like Pastor Stephanie said, where, where this was going, but we were reading a book called discerning God's will together. And then we did a whole series uh, in the experiencing God workbook, mm-hmm. uh, a very famous uh, workbook about discerning where God is at work. And our leadership team came to this, decision, hey, let's reach out to some other churches. Let's see if we can partner at a deeper level or uh, work with uh, some other churches. And the first name that came up, the first church that everybody thought, hey, we have a lot of similarities with uh, part of our same uh, denomination, Converge. Um, uh, Mill City was was the first uh, name. And yeah. so I, I scheduled a lunch with Pastor Stephanie and we we just got talking and somebody just the day before that had given her a book called Better Together. Yeah. And the book the book's a really excellent guide on on all things with a with a merger from start to finish. Uh it was shocking to read and it was very illuminating to read. Yeah. It yeah. was tough. It was tough to read because we could easily I could easily identify Elam as a, a stable church but a stuck church. Mm-hmm. And so uh that's kind of where we went from there. We kind of identified where we were at in the process 
um, or, or in the uh, situations that we were in. We saw Mill City through the pandemic actually growing as a church mm-hmm. and in, in numbers and in depth. And um, it was a really, that was kind of the start of our conversation. Yeah, I love that. Um, when we come back, we're going to ask Steph how um, how she remembers sort of the beginning of this conversation and then how the Better Together um, proposal came to be and then like how these church actually churches have merged and how the two have become one. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Listen to Faith Radio live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app at your app store today. All right, continuing our conversation now with Steph O'Brien and Paul Olson. They are pastors at now Mill City Church. Um, Elam Church and Mill City Church have merged as a way forward um, for both congregations to flourish and the gospel to advance in the Twin Cities. Um, Steph, let's uh, let's uh, let's talk about you know how you remember sort of the beginning or the initial parts of this conversation, and then talk with us a little bit about the process and what it has yielded. Yeah. Yeah, so when Paul approached me and and asked, would we ever consider something like this? Um, you know, I remember thinking, we did not have this class in seminary. And <laughs> Paul agreed. <laughs> there isn't a class exactly. about church mergers for most seminaries, um, although that might be popping up here soon. Um, but we we got that book and started talking to other people and got a lot of wise counsel and just realized that at the end of the day, if we were going to keep moving forward, we were going to have to trust the Holy Spirit because there wasn't a perfect roadmap for this. But the book um, outlined kind of three steps. First, a step of feasibility and just asking, is this a feasible thing to do? Before you ask a bunch of people to start praying about it, is it even really possible? Um, Or what would the questions be? What would be the challenges? And so we determined after a little bit that it was feasible um, as two leadership teams or our boards. And then we brought that discernment to the congregations. We had them a part of this from the beginning. They were right there, lock and step, praying, listening together. And then it came to a point where we decided we wanted to make that decision. And both congregations in our polity, our, our leadership structure, would vote on that. And so on December 18th of 2022, both churches voted over 90% yes to go forward with the merger. So that was the process, um, you know, five months squeezed down into a couple minutes <laughs> summary. But it was really powerful. One of the most powerful things I've ever been a part of. And if it wasn't for Paul and, and the others at Elam for taking such a courageous step, we wouldn't be able to see the the what I would say is a very strong move of God in our community right now. Yeah, and so I want to talk about um, the Ascendant Church because we spend a lot of time um, wringing our hands in the United States sure. of America, um, talking about church decline. I would love for the two of you to fan the flame um, generationally, maybe mm-hmm. in terms of the impact you've seen in your neighborhood, how people's perspectives have changed on one another and on the, you know, the positive future that God has for us. So Paul, maybe take a stab at that. And then uh, Steph will invite you to do the same. Yeah. I think the word that comes to mind is that a generous church is a church that flourishes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I even think about my short time at Elam relative to its history um, you know, for the past 15 years, the church has had a large outreach to those experiencing homelessness in the city. Yeah. And we, we determined that tens of thousands of meals uh, were, 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 were served up with a smile at, mm-hmm. at our church uh, through 
shelters, winter shelters, emergency shelters. And our church uh, had really become known for that throughout the city, still is. And mm-hmm. um, a, a ministry out of that was called Hope Avenue, was birthed and now is becoming its own nonprofit and praying and seeking funding for for starting a shelter in north or northeast Minneapolis where there are no shelters. So I think of the times when our church was most full, where we had our families, our our young people, our older folks together working on this mission to to be generous to the neighborhood, to be generous to to anyone who would come to to Elam. Elam comes from uh, the book of Exodus where the Israelites were making their way out of Egypt, and that was the first place they camped. There were 70 palms, 12 wells, uh, enough water for every tribe, and in, in enough shade to to find rest. And so Elam has always tried to be an oasis in the city. And um, that, that comes through deep generosity, uh, giving time, uh, volunteerism, and, and just a sense of we're here for the community, for the city. We're not against the city. We're here for the city. We love the city and the people in it because God does too. Uh, mm. Yeah, I would totally, I would totally agree I with that. I love Paul. that. Yeah, that's a big thing in Northeast Minneapolis to see that you care about the people. It's been a, they often call it kind of like a small town feel in the big city. And um, our church has been really involved in, in food insecurity. And we started a nonprofit called Every Meal that supports schools around the Twin Cities now, 260 schools and counting, I think, um, but launches a separate nonprofit. So you've got Elam host launching out a nonprofit and Mill City launching out a nonprofit. But at the end of the day, it's about Jesus and about how we are seeking after being Jesus-centered people. And that's our why. And so when people see those good works and they wonder about it, then we say, well, here's our why. It's Jesus and he's changed our lives and he can change your life too. And I think when when you pursue that together, um, when we've asked our community, which like Paul said, has grown, doubled in the last year, um, including the Elam alumni, we're calling them now, but uh, other people that have joined. When we ask people, why why are you joining? There's There's kind of two main things. They say the first thing is we see a clear mission from this church and we want to be a part of something that God is doing. And the second thing that they say is that they want equipping and resources to follow Jesus in an increasingly complex world. And so I I know many folks have decided that maybe organized church is not what they need to follow Jesus, but it is becoming increasingly complex to do so. And I don't know how to do that without community. And so we just invite to people to say, let's do this together. Let's figure out how to love other people together. Let's love each other and love Jesus and and go for it together. And I think that kind of generosity, like Paul said, and momentum and energy um, is something that people do want to be a part of. While it is true that there is decline, um, God is still moving. And like you said at the beginning, Carmen, uh, we know that it's the church, God's church, it's Jesus' church, not uh, necessarily the local churches as institutions or as specific. The, the church of Jesus meets in many locations. Um, we're all part of that one church. Yeah, that is so, um, so wonderful. Okay, people are going to want to know uh, a little bit more about each of these nonprofits that the two of you have just mentioned. So Steph um, and Paul, each of you, like, spend a minute talking about um, the two nonprofits that you um, that you both have mentioned, because I think it's helpful for people to who want to engage specifically um, to have a little bit more information. Absolutely. Paul, why don't you share about Hope Avenue Twin Cities? Yeah, sure. Hope Avenue Twin Cities was born out of a, a ministry called Hope Avenue that started from a, a sermon given by one of our pastors, uh, Pastor Becky, Becky Hansen. Uh, at the time, she had 
no experience working with people who were in homelessness. And uh, so a small group in the church started going out, providing sandwiches and giving, uh, you know, water and help and prayer to people on the street. Yeah. Pretty soon people wanted to come back to the church and, and experience the community. And so they started a, a breakfast on Sunday morning. And, and over the years that grew, it became 150 people on most Sundays, we would have 150 in worship and 150 in, in or, or more uh, having a breakfast meal. And um, so out of that it sprung emergency shelters, relationships with local folks, um, uh, people in the neighborhood would come and volunteer at the shelter. And pretty soon we, we, as a leadership team, just decided this is too big for us to handle with all the other church responsibilities. And um, uh, Pastor Becky was able to form a board and, and get the paperwork together um, here in the last, about the last year, it would be about a year now that Hope Avenue Twin Cities was born. And so they operating right now out of North Minneapolis and they run a day shelter for uh, men there uh, to provide clothing, hospitality, um, sleep and, and community over there. Uh, so and great. so the, the, web, the website, Hope Avenue, uh, you can, you can search Hope Avenue Twin Cities. You'll, you'll find. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to drop the, I'm going to drop the links for both Hope Avenue and, uh, every meal in the show mm-hmm. notes today. Um, so Steph, yeah. give us a minute on every meal. Yeah. Every meal came out of the need that we saw to cover the weekend food gap um, for kids because they'll get meals at school. And of course, I mentioned that our church was worshiping in a school um, until Easter here when we all will move back into Elam's building together um, as Mill City Church. And so because of that relationship with the school, we realized that, that kids were coming to school hungry on Mondays. And so how could we put food in lockers over the on Fridays so that kids would have food at home for their families and that birthed out of our church with one school to two schools to three schools, and then eventually became a nonprofit. Actually, my brother, Rob Williams, is the president of that now. And it's um, now serving it, millions, I mean, millions of meals have been served. It's it's in, amazing. And they're continuing to do that work. The, in, the need is increasing as well. So that's everymeal.org. I love it. All right. I'm going to put all the links to everything that we've talked about in the show notes today. You can check it all out at millcitychurch.com. Steph and Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. What a delight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. All right. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. All right, uh, PEPFAR is 20. Um, that is something to celebrate. If you are not familiar with PEPFAR, it is a, an, a, an AIDS program launched by George W. Bush um, 20 years ago. The PEPFAR program um, has been really significant in addressing the global HIV AIDS situation. Um, and we just want to celebrate that. I want to celebrate good things um, when they happen and particularly when they continue to happen over long periods of time. So this is one of the ways that America is doing good around the world through PEPFAR. I just wanted to celebrate um, its birthday today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for joining us. You can grab the podcast as it re-airs at MyFaithRadio.com. And you can get the show notes there later today as well. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.